Welcome to The Critic and Her Publix from the New York Review of Books and Lit Hub. I'm your host, Marva Emre. In this live interview series, I ask the best and most prominent critics working today to perform criticism on the spot, on an object they've never seen before. It's a glimpse into brilliant minds at work, performing their thinking, taking risks, and making spontaneous judgments, which are sometimes right and sometimes wrong. If you read criticism regularly, then you start to develop a pantheon of writers whose bylines you look for with every new issue of every magazine that you read. For me, Sophie Pinkham is one of these writers. She is a professor of comparative literature at Cornell. Her essays on art and literature under autocracy have been incredibly compelling models of how to ask questions about aesthetics and politics, form and power, with tremendous precision. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Economist 1843 Magazine, The New Yorker, The New Left Review, and The Washington Post. She's also a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books, which has published her essays about Ukrainian and Russian novels, modernist architecture in communist Yugoslavia, the past and present of socialist realist painting, and my favorite of her essays, which is on post-communist Russian feminism and feminist poetry. Her book, Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine, is a brilliant and disturbing blend of reportage and memoir, an examination of how history is manipulated by reactionary empires to serve their nationalist, xenophobic, imperialist landlust. She's working on a book called The Spirit in the Trees about the cultural history of Russia's forests. And I have a feeling that the surprise object that I give her in the second half of this episode will give us a glimpse of her current thinking. I'm very, very excited to have Sophie as my guest today. So, Sophie, I will start by asking you the same question that I asked Andrea at the beginning of our conversation, which is this. Many people in the audience tonight are 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old college students, and you are here in part as a model of how they can get from where they are to where you are. So I wonder if we could begin by having you narrate that journey. Yes, with pleasure. Um, I think my journey to literary criticism has perhaps been somewhat unusually uh, circuitous. I began in a very straightforward manner. I graduated with an English degree, um, but then I took a strange swerve um, because as someone who had grown up in New York City around a lot of people my own age who had immigrated from the Soviet Union as children, um, I had spent quite a lot of time with people from the Soviet Union, so people whose native language was Russian. And gradually, as I studied uh, English poetry when I was in college, began to become fascinated by Russian poetry, and in particular by the strange, charismatic, and weirdly sexy uh, futurist poet Vladimir Mayakovsky. Can we pause? Yes. Tell us what made him so sexy. Um, well, it's, I mean, Russia is a place that has so specialized in sexy poets, um, but I think it is partly the, the charge of social importance that poetry had in Russia, right? 
and also its affiliation, and this is very sinister in some ways as well, and it's important to know that Mayakovsky died by suicide, certainly in part due to his relationship to political power. Um, and so Mayakovsky was someone who became probably the biggest superstar poet in a nation known for its superstar poets in the 1920s. And he was in some way the most prominent the most typical, one might say, poet of the early Soviet project. So um, before it descended into full-blown Stalinism and a poet of the revolution. And so that, I think, invested him with a social energy that was deeply appealing. He also, to my, you know, my adolescent mind, just looked quite sexy in photographs. <laughs> and I learned later that I was not the only one who had this slightly twisted appreciation of the physical appearance of Vladimir Mayakovsky, whose, whose photo, I must confess, still adorns my wall. <laughs> he inspired me. And he, you know, he was also someone who was very interesting to the New York poets of the 1970s, notably Kenneth Coke. And I had a lot of friends in New York who were aspiring poets, some of whom are also now critics of various kinds, um, and who studied with Kenneth Koch while he was still alive, who studied poetry writing. And mm -hmm. so there was this connection between enthusiasm for, uh, for Russian futurism and then the 1970s uh, New York School of Poets and John Ashbery, who's a poet who also became a favorite of mine when I was in college. Um, okay, so hot, powerful, revolutionary, yeah. transnational. I'm sorry yeah. to take us vague, off vague, of that. Vague, confused, yeah. adolescent yearnings. Okay. So okay. I started studying Russian. I studied Russian for just one year in the end of college. Um, and then didn't really know what to do with myself. At that time, I had a sort of vague desire to become a novelist, but I felt that also in a quite retro and old-fashioned way. <laughs> I felt that, like Melville, I should, so to speak, take to the high seas, and that it was absolutely necessary for me to go as far away as possible. And so I found an advertisement for an exchange program. It's amusing to imagine this existing now, but for a Russian-American exchange program for young people. What year are we in now? This is in 2005. Okay. Yeah. So a long time ago. Um, and I applied for this exchange program, and I didn't know where they would place me. It had something to do with public health, which was another thing that I was interested in. I had been involved in some AIDS activism and reproductive rights activism um, in college, and actually even in high school to some extent. Um, and so I was placed at the Red Cross in Irkutsk, which is in Siberia. Some of you might know it from the board game Risk. That at that time was the only way that anyone I met knew Irkutsk. And I was there in late November and December. Um, and so Irkutsk is very deep in Siberia. It's near Lake Baikal. Um, it's immensely cold. And at the Red Cross in Irkutsk, the main health problems that they coped with were HIV, because there was a huge HIV epidemic in Russia at that time, um, and frostbite. So that kind of gives you a picture of Irkutsk at that time. And I became very fascinated by the problems of post-Soviet public health. When I returned from Irkutsk, I eventually ended up getting a job, actually, at George Soros's now infamous foundation. <laughs> um, so I was working for George Soros, who's a Hungarian philanthropist. Um, and working in public health in the former Soviet Union. And during that time, I became very deeply interested in Soviet history and in the transition from the Soviet Union, how societies were transformed, how the people of these different countries ended up um, redefining their identities, right? Sort of casting off the Soviet legacy sometimes, sometimes clinging to it, 
um, sometimes retrieving old forms of nationalism. And then as a product of that, I ended up getting a Fulbright grant and going and living in Ukraine for several years. And then I studied, um, I researched, and then I got a job and stayed on even longer in Ukraine and really fell in love with Ukraine. And also, and this is extremely bizarre in light of current events, that was also where I learned Russian. Um, so I had, um, I had an interesting experience of I couldn't say complete immersion in Russian, of course, because it was Ukraine. I was living in Kiev, which was a completely bilingual city at that time. Um, and I think it still is bilingual in the sense that everyone there can speak Russian and Ukrainian if they want to. But for very obvious reasons, most people at this point choose not to speak Russian anymore, right? Um, they only speak to each other in Ukrainian. But at that point, Russian was probably the predominant language in Kiev. Um, and bizarrely, I got an American government grant to learn Russian in Kiev. Can, can I interrupt you for yeah. a second? So you've said bizarrely <laughs> twice now. Yeah. And I just want to press a little bit on what makes that feel bizarre, or if you could just reflect a little on the dissonance of getting the language education that you did in the place that you did, given the current events of the present. Yeah, I mean, I think I was attracted to that part of the world because it was in transition. I was already aware that it was in transition, but I certainly had no understanding at all of where the transition was going to lead, right, of the next turning point, which was, of course, Russia's horrifying uh, violence towards Ukraine and its, um, its support of separatists, of course, in 2014, who annexed eastern Ukraine with the support of, of uh, the Russian military and now the full-blown war, which all of you are very aware of. Although, of course, in a certain way, it, it resonates, obviously, with other parts of Russian history, with the Russian Revolution, right, with this profound uncertainty, this feeling of sort of teetering on the edge of an abyss that has characterized a lot of Russian literature and, and Russian culture, I would say, and Russian language literature and culture. Um, does that answer your question? It does. It does. Okay. So, so to take us back, you are in Ukraine. You are studying. You were in graduate school at this point, or you're still on your Fulbright? No, nope, I was still on my Fulbright. Okay. And then I went to graduate school. Sorry, I'm. <laughs> this is a long story. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> Buckle in. Yeah. So then I went to graduate school, and I decided to do Slavic studies. Um, I had really become entranced by Soviet culture, right? There was Ukrainian modernism, there was a great blossoming of all kinds of culture that were not necessarily in the Russian language or specific to, to Russia in the time of the Soviet Union. But I was very entranced by Russian language literature in particular um, and ended up doing a PhD in Slavic. And then there was the dramatic turn of the Maidan revolution in 2013, which was when protesters gathered and stayed in the center of Kiev for uh, for many, many weeks um, and ended up driving out the then president, Viktor Yanukovych, and that was what helped trigger Russia's first attack on Ukraine. And this is where I would give you advice, if you will accept advice from me as young people of today, that it does really help to have a strange expertise 
So, the, you know, the American job market is full of people who speak only English, right? But it turns out that having somewhat unusual language skills can be immensely useful, right? Because it sets you apart. And having some very specific experience in some other part of the world can also be enormously useful. It gives you a starting point. It becomes a sort of calling card for you. And so when the Maidan protests happen and then, uh, and then the subsequent events, it turned out that I was one of the only people who was you know, writing essays, although I had just started, I had only, I think I had only published one or two sort of magazine pieces at that point, um, and I was just starting graduate school. But I was one of the only people who was sort of in the writing scene who had any deep experience of Ukraine. And that was how my book came about which was published in 2016. You know, to go back to something that you said about Mayakovsky and the feeling that you had reading his poetry and reading about him, that there was a great social importance to poetry. That sense of great social importance to art is something that I feel very strongly when I read your essays. And if I can be a little provocative, it's not something that I always feel when I read academic writing. And I think one thing that you've managed to do so wonderfully is take that strange expertise that in some ways could only be cultivated in, or at least adjacent to, a university and use it to make us feel the power and the social potential of art. So can you talk a little bit about how you pull that off and how you think about these questions in the context of the essays that you've written, for instance, for the New York Review of Books? Mm. Well, I mean, I would say, going back to Mayakovsky, and thank you for, for circling back to that, that part of what made me so interested in Russian literature and culture, as someone who had always, from early childhood, been passionately interested in literature, been completely invested in literature for whom literature was life in some way. I actually found my childhood diary recently from when I was in sixth grade, and there was one misspelled entry in pencil that said, another day lived through reading when I was like, <laughs> but, um, No, that's very but sweet. One, but one thing that attracted me to Russian history was the prominence of poets and writers in Russian history. And it was immediately apparent to me, even as sort of a essentially foreign exchange, very naive, confused uh, foreign exchange student who barely knew Russian was that a very large proportion of the streets in Russia are named after writers, right? And for Russian people, that's completely pedestrian. And the sort of toppling of canonical Russian figures and of monuments to poets such as Pushkin, who became symbols of imperial power, has become very symbolically important with good reason in places such as Ukraine. But I was fascinated by that close linkage between literature and politics which was not something that I had felt strongly in the American context. Mm. Um, so in my criticism, I mean, part of it is just a historical fact that literature and other forms of culture have been much closer to political power mm. historically and have been used as, as tools of political power. But I think that one thing that I'm interested in doing in my writing is to look at ways in which that still might be true, right? And I think that today there is a reflexive tendency sometimes to think of literature 
in particular, but also other forms of culture as sort of an extra, right? As an ornament, as sort of icing on the cake, as something that is expendable, right? And unnecessary. And what is at the core of power? The core of power is, I don't know, you know, money, politics, weapons, right? But I think it's worth asking whether there is actually a current of power that is always in literature and is in culture, even at times when it's less explicit. Can you talk a little bit about how you distinguish between the image of a writer that has been created and perhaps put into circulation for all kinds of nefarious and objectionable reasons and, let us say, the poet or the poetry itself? Hmm. Well, I think you want to keep returning to the poetry itself. And part of that has to do with reading as much of the person's body of work as you can, right, to understand what proportion, for example, with Pushkin, what proportion of his work is extremely objectionable Russian nationalist poems, right? Because he did write a few very politically objectionable nationalist poet poems, which were have recently been widely circulated online, etc. The same is true of Brodsky. Um, and it is this this atmosphere of of memes and reposts also and and fury which is justified and understandable um, but s suddenly those few most objectionable poems become the key representative of that poet's whole body of work right and you should absolutely take those poems into account and they're very significant especially the ones like uh, some of Pushkin's most objectionable poems which have been used as political tools right and have been very important building blocks in the creation of this poet's image as an, a sort of nationalist icon, right, to some extent. Um, but you also want to understand all of their other poetry. You want to situate that poem in the person's career. When did they write that poem? Why did they write that poem? What was the context of, of that poem? We will take a short break now and be back with the second half of The Critic and Her Publics. The Critic and Her Publics is sponsored by Vintage publisher of Crying in H Mart, the number one New York Times bestselling memoir by indie rock star Michelle Zahner of Japanese breakfast fame. In poignant memories and lyrical prose, Zahner reflects on her experience growing up Korean-American, losing her mother, and forging her own identity. New Yorker writer Rachel Syme says, Michelle Zahner has written a book you experience with all of your senses. Sentences you can taste, paragraphs that sound like music. Full of hope, Humor and honest emotion, Crying in H Mart is a book to cherish, share, and reread. Over one million readers have fallen in love. Now it's your turn. Available now wherever books are sold. You know, speaking about a current of power or the underground of power, let's say, I wonder if I could give you something to read and if you could put your mind to work on an object that I think comes bearing a great deal of power, and I'm curious to hear what you think about it. You all already have a copy of this. Sophie, I offer it to you, and I would ask perhaps that you first start by reading it aloud for us. Okay. And maybe describe it, and then perhaps read aloud whatever parts of it you feel might be important for your performance of criticism on the object. 
Okay. So this is a poem called Black Earth. Okay. Chernozyom, which is by Osip Mandelstam, who is one of the greatest writers of the Soviet period um, and who is one of the many writers who was killed as a direct result of Soviet power. Um, and it, For those keeping track at home, Sophie is the first to correctly identify the object that she has been given. So you will get extra brownie points for that. Well done. Well done. Um, yeah, this is one of his more famous later poems that was written very close to the end of his life. It was written when he was in exile in Voronezh. And so Black Earth refers to the extremely fertile soil in the steppe area of central Russia and Ukraine. And I suspect that uh, Merve may have cleverly chosen this poem because it does connect to my book and it connects to Ukraine, right? Because part of the reason that Ukraine has been sort of coveted by Russian power is because of its extremely fertile soil. But this in the true Mandelstamian fashion is a poem that is extremely difficult to translate. Um, and I, I wrote for the Poetry Foundation about um, Peter Francis' really excellent translation of a lot of Mandelstam's poetry. Uh, he has, I, th I believe, two collections of translation that came out with, with New Directions. Um, they're outstanding. But Mandelstam's poetry is immensely difficult to translate because it is this sort of tissue of living sand. Could we perhaps... So I should perhaps read a little bit of it? Sure. Actually, like why or don't we do it? I'm just thinking. Do do it? Why don't let's... we do it stanza by stanza, and let's do it comparatively stanza by stanza. So do you want to okay. read the first stanza of the first version and the first stanza of the second version that yes. I've given you here? And then yes. tell me how you think about these comparative translations. Mm -hmm. Okay. Go ahead. So in the first, uh, first translation, the first stanza goes... Manured, blackened, worked to a fine tilth, combed like a stallion's mane, stroked under the wide air, all the loosened ridges cast up in a single choir, the damp crumbs of my earth and my freedom. And then in the second translation, it reads, too black, too much indulged, living in clover, all little withers, all air, all loving care, all crumbling and all massing in a choir, damp clods of soil, my freedom and my earth. How do you even begin to approach <laughs> these two unbelievably different translations of the same stanza? Well, I think that one thing that they show very clearly is the fact that Mandelstam's poetry, and I think that this is true of all poetry, probably, all good poetry, definitely, um, but it's extremely unusually true of Mandelstam's poetry. It depends on the multiple meanings of words, um, and it also depends on the interaction of the semantic meaning of words, of their what they indicate literally, and their sound and their sort of connotation, their mood, right? Um, and so this is very difficult for a translator because they are immediately faced, and this starts actually with the first word of this poem in Russian, with overwhelming and perhaps panic-inducing ambiguity. 
Um, so the first word of this poem in Russian is periuvajna, which is a more or less made-up word, I think, that is formed with this miraculous possibility of the Russian language to add a prefix onto almost any word in order to change its meaning. And so the prefix pere, which then appears the second time in perichirna, um, the next word, which is too black or over blackened, but this first word, periuvajna, comes from the word for respect. And onto it has been attached this prefix that m- can mean repeatedly or excessively or sometimes across. So that's quite abstract, right? So it could mean um, repeatedly respected, excessively respected, mm-hmm. something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But what does that really mean? And then you continue reading and you realize that this is all referring to earth, right? So what on earth does it mean <laughs> to say that the earth is over-respected or perhaps repeatedly respected or as the first translation has concluded manured right so <laughs> this is a sort of staggering variety of possibilities is that a fair conclusion already. is manured, manured versus i think too much indulged right I, is, the, perhaps, is the corollary here yeah perhaps yeah i mean can you imagine that you're a translator and you're choosing between manured and overly indulged, right? <laughs> how, do you, how do you get this? I am not sure, frankly, how they got to manured. There might be an agricultural connotation to that word that I'm not aware of. Um, but yeah, this is, these are sort of staggering, uh, staggering choices that confront the translator. But then I think that um, one thing that the translator has to think about is to what extent Mandelstam is being governed by just the sound of words. Um, and so you can see, even if you can't read Russian, you can see um, in the in the pattern just all the X's. Look at all the X's um, in that first stanza, right? So there's Holya, and then Holkach, uh, um, which is withers, and then Hor, which is choir, right? And so when you're a poet, oftentimes you're choosing words not exclusively because of their sound, right? But largely because of their sound, because that's how you're, you're composing your poem. Um, and this is, a, this is a more or less rhyming poem. So how poem. do you judge, Sophie? So you mm-hmm. have this special expertise, which we talked about, mm-hmm. and it has been cultivated through years and years of immersion and study. And then you encounter these two versions of a poem that comes bearing a particular force and a particular social power. How do you how do you judge? How does that act of judgment happen in your mind? Because I assume it's not a kind of one-to-one, this is more faithful to the original than this word. So so how does the judgment happen here? Well, there are two schools of translation. Um, the first one is all about so-called fidelity, right? And that is much more the one-to-one school of translation. Nabokov is one of the most passionate advocates of this one-to-one school of translation and wrote many angry and disgusted polemics against <laughs> anyone who used their judgment and changed the text. Even the word order he thought should not be changed properly in a good translation, which led him to make some really, really bad translations, <laughs> in my view. Um, so I'm certainly not a fan of the, the one-to-one simply because you end up with a lot that is unintelligible. Um, and so you often end up with extremely bizarre 
and sort of convoluted turns of phrase. For example, in English, when the original is quite straightforward and sounds very natural and light, doesn't even really draw attention to itself, right? Um, and I am more in the the school of translation as a sort of inspired approximation or even recreation, a sort of reinvention. And I think that this is especially true of poetry. Um, poetry is just not something that you can translate in a one-to-one -one sense, unless it's quite bad, overly simple poetry, right? Um, good poetry needs to be reinvented. And I think that's part of the reason that oftentimes the best poetic translators are poets themselves, right? So, so whose reinvention, whose reinvention is more appealing to you? If that's a fair question to ask, <laughs> is there a better reinvention here? I, I prefer the second one. You know, the first one has this ending line, be the dark speech of silence laboring. That's very bad. That's very, very bad. Okay, wait, let's 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 get our let's let's work our way there. Let's take the next two stanzas together. So could you okay. read the first and the second? Okay. Stanzas two and three. In the first days of plowing, it's so black it looks blue. Here the labor without tools begins. A thousand mounds of rumor plowed open. I see the limits of this have no limits. Yet the earth's a mistake, the back of an axe. Fall at her feet, she won't notice. She pricks up our ears with her rotting flute, freezes them with the woodwinds of her mourning. And then in the next translation, with early plowing, it is black to blueness. An unarmed labor here is glorified. A thousand hills plowed open wide to say it. Circumference is not all circumscribed. And yet the earth is blunder and obtuseness, no swaying it even on bended knee. Its rotting flute gives sharpness to the hearing. Its morning clarinet harrows the ear. So to me, what immediately jumps out in those third stanzas is how the earth becomes the she, right? In that, in the first one, mm. she pricks up our ears with her rotting flute. Mm -hmm. And then in the second one, how its rotting flute gives sharpness to the hearing. Can you talk a little bit about those choices? Well, that's a decision that has to do simply with um, having gender of nouns in Russian and mm. not in English, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just a moment of translatorly discretion. Do you want to reproduce it? But it is a moment where the what appears to be the more literal option, which is to give it a gender, I, I guess that's the more literal option, makes it feel like a very gendered poem in a way that it really doesn't necessarily um, in Russian, because in Russian it's completely natural for every noun to have a gender, right? You don't think about it so much. I'm sure a lot of you speak some language that has gender. Many languages have, have gender, and you don't necessarily think of the, the noun, the com especially a commonplace noun, um, as being profoundly associated with people of that gender. Whereas when you make that choice in English, it has to do with an interpretation of a poem, um, and especially with a poem of this complexity, of this elusiveness, um, of this ambiguity, um, and Mandelstam is an immensely complicated poet, uh, the translator is doing a huge amount of interpretive work, and the translation really pivots completely and succeeds or fails 
based in part on the translator's interpretation, but also on their ear. Um, and so one thing that I like in this second translation a little bit more maybe is the way that it does seem to do a better job of without trying to fully reproduce the rhyme, which I think is a very dangerous attempt, um, especially given that English is a language where it's much harder to make rhymes uh, than Russian. Um, but without, uh, without trying to reproduce the specific scheme of rhyme and meter, it does intimate to you that this is a poem that's largely about sounds, right? Which it is. So as an English reader who has no access to the Russian original, you can still uh, see that the, that, the, that the sound is important. So it matters in the first stanza, for example, that um, all air, all loving care, right? There's a little rhyme that he was able to squeeze in there uh, within a single line. That's important. Whereas the first translation is um, more of the kind of conversational, plain-spoken style of poetry, which is, of course, wonderful in its own way, and there are some lovely lines there, um, but I think is much less true to Mandelstam's own approach to poetry. Let's speak about the final stanza. Okay. How good the fat earth feels on the plowshare, how still the step turned up to April. Salutations, black earth, courage, keep the eye wide be the dark speech of silence laboring. And the second one, how sweet the fat earth's pressure on the plow, how the spring turns the step to its advantage. My greetings then, black earth, be strong, look out, black eloquence of wordlessness in labor. So to me, there's a huge difference between silence laboring and wordlessness in labor. I mean, as I, as I said before, I think that the, the final line of the first poem just sounds really bad. It yeah. just sounds twisted and convoluted and awkward, and you have to pause to parse it. Um, and Mandelstam, I think, when you try to translate him or you try to study him intensively and really parse his meaning, it's really difficult. Um, just analyzing the grammar and figuring out what's going on. Um, I'm not a native Russian speaker, but I think even sometimes for native Russian speakers, it can be confusing. But you're sort of hit by this overwhelming sensation, even before you've parsed exactly what is going on with the words, right? And so I think that the translation has probably failed if it doesn't hit you with a feeling um, before you've tried to figure out what the words actually mean. And say, be the dark speech of silence laboring, for me at least, be the dark speech of silence laboring doesn't hit me with any feeling. It just makes me think, like, what are you talking about? Um, black eloquence of wordlessness in labor, you know, it's still pretty complicated, mm -hmm. but it does better. So to pull up a little bit, let us say you were writing an essay the kind that you've written before, in which you were talking about two different translations mm. of kind of canonical or beloved poet. Where do you go from here? So you have these observations. How do you plug those observations into making some kind of larger argument or telling some kind of larger story? Well, I mean, I tend to partly because I found that this is what readers tend to enjoy. Um, I tend to go to the poet or the writer's original work and put them in a larger story. Um, so I would place this poem, uh, this late Mandelstam poem, in the story of 
Mandelstam's exile to Voronezh in central Russia, in the story of his impending death, which he sort of felt. So in this period when he was writing, he was having this great final, very tragic outburst of creativity before he died in the Gulag and produced these poems that had this quite strange admixture of menace. So there's something quite menacing in this poem, right? And quite mm-hmm. disturbing. There's the rotting flute and the back of an axe. That's something I like in the first poem, that it uh, keeps the back of the axe. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something really threatening, but there's this also this sort of magnificent fertility, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. And abundance of the earth, which was something that was there. And so I think it's important to root, if you will, that tension in Mandelstam's biography and then in the larger events that he was taking part in, right? Which is Stalinism and the purges under Stalin. So you have the poem, you situate it in a biography, and then you situate the biography in a kind of political context or condition. Mm -hmm. What are the difficulties of reading biographically and then of reading biographies politically? Because you also do this quite a bit in your essays, and I think you, you manage to find the right balance yeah. in such, a, such an adept way. It's funny that you ask that because in my training as an undergrad, you know, it was still the days at Yale when the analysis of poetry was rooted in this new critical approach, right, right. which was anti-historical. And so we would have no historical context. And the idea was that you just sit there with a poem and you can sit there kind of in a black box and it's irrelevant how it relates to the poet's biography. And, you know, I was taught about the biographical fallacy and mm-hmm. uh, it's certainly irrelevant what were the historical times that the person was uh, was living in. And I teach I, a class based on exactly this premise, so I'm I, very honestly, excited to hear you I, say this. I yeah. loved that. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I took so much pleasure in it. I, I mean, I sought them out when I was an undergraduate. I only took classes in poetry close reading. I didn't take any prose classes. Mm-hmm. I didn't take a single history class the entire time I was an undergraduate. <laughs> All I wanted to do was sit there kind of rigorously reading poetry mm-hmm. in a void. Um, but then I must say, actually, at a certain point, and it was when I wrote my senior thesis, I was writing my senior thesis in college about Emily Dickinson's poems where she's, <laughs> where the speaker is already dead but is still writing a poem. And I was reading, reading, and I realized that a lot of her similes were actually quite direct references to specific conventions of mourning and death uh, during the Civil War period, right? Because it was a time when, of mass trauma when so many people were dying and a lot of young people were dying. And I started to feel that, at least I personally, as much as I loved reading poems in a void, I personally kind of wanted to also know what was going on historically mm-hmm. because I found with those Emily Dickinson poems that it completely changed my feeling about the poems and my understanding of the poems. I didn't love them any less. Um, but in a way, they they were less enigmatic, but also kind of more bright. Um, mm-hmm. And I liked having the story to attach them mm-hmm. to. And I think a lot of readers also really, really enjoy that. So I would say that in my writing, I try to maintain a respect for literature as something that can, great literature can always be read with pleasure, with joy, with sort of edification without that historical context. If it's truly great, it stands alone, I think, very strongly. But I think that that 
that context is a great pleasure as well um, and further enriches um, your understanding of the poem. And for me, write, great writers like Mandelstam or Emily Dickinson or, or whoever, they exist as sort of living people in my imagination. They're almost like your friends at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Um, and for that, you need to understand some context. So I will ask one more question. We just spoke about how you might situate this if you were writing it as part of, it, part of an essay for the review or wherever in which you were talking about Mandelstam, you were talking about different translations of his work. How would you situate this if you were writing about it in, for instance, the first chapter of a book on the cultural history of forests, mm-hmm. like the book that you are working on now? Well, if it were in, and I have been thinking about trying to write about Mandelstam in, in my book about forests, um, I would start, of course, with the Black Earth um, and the history of the Black Earth. And the Black Earth, I don't know if Mandelstam knew this, but the expansion into the super fertile Black Earth was what allowed the Russian Empire to become what it did and to, to grow as it did because it allowed these much larger agricultural yields. So in that sense, it's it's a very powerful poem about the relationship between um, geography and the earth in the most literal sense um, and political power, right? Um, And a political power that destroyed the poet in the end. So it opens, one could imagine it, serving Mm -hmm. as a kind of opening, opening to a book about the relationship between the earth, power, and poetry since it triangulates those three things so beautifully. Yes, yes, yes. Sophie, thank you so much for being with us here tonight. Thank you so much for inviting me, and thank you everyone for coming. You've been listening to The Critic and Her Publix with Sophie Pinkham. I'm Marva Emre. I'd like to thank the staff at the Shapiro Center and the President's Office at Wesleyan University, the New York Review of Books, Lit Hub, and Knopf. Thank you to the New York Review of Books for providing us with permission to use the first translation of this episode's surprise object, Mandelstam's Black Earth. And thank you to New Directions for the second translation. Thank you to our editor, Michelle Moses, and our composer, Danny Lencioni, for her score. Join us in two weeks for my conversation with Hannah Goldfield.